Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 of the Great Commentary of Cornelius Elipedi, St. Matthew's Gospel, by Cornelius Elipedi. The LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3. 1. John preacheth his office, life, and baptism. 7. He reprehendeth the Pharisees. 13. And baptizeth Christ in the Jordan. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John, to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In those days, etc. This was the fifteenth year of Tiberius, as St. Luke says, when John and Christ were about thirty years of age. Matthew passes at once from the childhood of Christ to his age of manhood, when he commenced his actual work of preaching and redemption, for which he had been sent by the Father into the world. He sent John before him to announce to the Jews that he was the Messiah, lest if Christ should appear in Judea abruptly, without one to point out who he was, or a witness worthy of credit, he should be despised of all. Christ lived in obscurity, and exercised a workman's craft with his father Joseph for nineteen years to give to the world a memorable example of humility. He began to preach in his thirteenth year, that he might confirm himself to the customs and laws of the Jews. Amongst them, it was not lawful for anyone to execute the office of a doctor or a priest before his thirtieth year. Such is the Hebrew tradition, and the same thing may be gathered from First Chronicles 23. Hence John began to preach in this same thirtieth year, 
but a little before Christ. That Christ should be hid so long in the obscure depths of his humility, St. Bernard admires when he exclaims, O humility, virtue of Christ, how dost thou confound the pride of our vanity? Little enough do I know, or rather seem to myself to know, and yet I cannot know. Impertinently and imprudently, caring and manifesting myself, ready to speak, swift to teach, slow to hear. And did Christ, when he kept silence for so long a time and hid himself, did he fear vainglory? What could he fear from vainglory? Who is the true glory of the Father? He did fear indeed, but not for himself. He feared for us that which he knew was to be feared by us. He took cautious heed for us, and so instructed us. He kept silence with his mouth, but taught by his deeds. And what he afterwards taught in words, he at this time cried aloud by his example. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. In the desert, not in a cultivated and inhabited place. For Isaiah, prophesying concerning this desert of John, speaks of it as a wilderness. And this is plain from the circumstances. We behold John's rough clothing of sackcloth of camel's hair, his woodland food, the locusts and wild honey. The motive cause of this life was that, as a follower of Moses and Elias, and the precursor of Christ in the desert, removed from the pollutions of men, he might converse with God and the angels, and might from them derive the power of strength and of the Spirit, and might acquire for himself the name and fame of sanctity, that all might give credit to him when he pointed out Christ, and being pricked at his preaching might repent. Whence the fathers constantly called John the prince of monks and anchorites, as St. Jerome, St. Chrysostom, Theophylact, Cassian. Hence John, living in the desert, an angelic life with the angels, was regarded as an angel by Malachi, and by Christ himself. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send mine angel before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. Symbolically, St. John, preaching in the desert, signified that the gospel would be preached chiefly, not in Jerusalem and Judea, but in the wilderness, i.e., the deserted multitudes of the Gentiles. So St. Jerome. Tripologically, St. John, by his example, taught that the apostolic men and preachers, who were about to be, would first retire from the tumult of men, to have leisure in secret for prayer and meditation, that they might thereby drink, as it were, from heaven, a mighty power of the Spirit, which they should afterwards pour forth upon their hearers. To this may be referred what St. Augustine says, He will not be a good clergyman who has not been a good monk. Wherefore, Saints Augustine, Martin, Chrysostom, Nazianzen, Basil, and many more were taken out of their monasteries into the ranks of the clergy, and even against their will, promoted to the episcopate. The wilderness of Judea was near the Jordan, close to Anon and Salem, John 3.23, and was very famous, both from the abundance of water for baptizing, as well as for being the abode and scene of the miracles of the prophets and religious men, who, in the books of the kings, were called the sons of the prophets, that is, Elijah and Elisha, and such as they. Lastly, 
Nicephorus asserts that when John was a year and a half old, he was taken by his mother into the desert. Cedrinius adds that he was concealed in a certain cave, and that his mother died there, and that an angel then took care of the child. This cave was afterwards frequented by the hermits, as appeared from John Muscus, who says that the cave was situated near the Jordan, and that by chance an abbot, John, who was sick, turned into it, where he was healed by John the Baptist, to whom he promised that he would dwell in that cave. When the Baptist appeared to the abbot, he said to him, I am John the Baptist, I bid thee that thou depart not from hence. For this narrow cave is greater than Mount Sinai, for into it our Lord Jesus Christ often entered when he visited me. Promise me therefore to dwell here, and I will restore thee to health. When the old man heard this, he willingly promised to dwell in the cave, and forthwith he was healed, and he abode there until his life's end. Moreover, he made that cave a church, and gathered brethren together there, and the name of the place was called Sapasus, saying, Repent ye, etc. John went into the desert, and there did penance, and led an austere life, that he might be a fitting preacher of repentance. St. Gregory Nazianzen strove to imitate John when he says, The office, or rather the service of John, I strive to undertake. And though I am not the forerunner, yet I come from the desert. For Gregory went apart with St. Basil into the wilderness of Pontus, and there led a hard life. And then, being filled with the Spirit, he came forth like another Baptist to preach repentance. This was the theme, this was the sum of the Baptist teaching. Repent, because well nigh all were grievous sinners, living in vices and lusts. Therefore repentance was necessary, that they might receive the grace and righteousness of Christ. Moreover, repentance is not only amendment of manners and the beginning of a new life, as the heretics say, but it is a destation, chastisement, and destruction of the old sinful life. For the new life cannot effectually begin until the old life be cast away. Whence the interlinear gloss thus expounds, let every man punish the evils of his former life, because salvation shall come nigh, and the opportunity of returning thither from whence we have fallen. St. Augustine says, He cannot begin the new life who does not repent of the old. To repent is to weep over sins past, and not to commit what has been wept over. He who truly repents chastises in himself his past errors, and lifts up his mind to heavenly things. And this virtue is born of holy fear, and is called potentia, penance, from the Latin punitendo, punishing, gloss. Whence Ausonius sings of penance, A God I, who punishment exact of things amiss, Metonia I, from penance I wis. St. Gregory says, Penitence is the bewailing past sins, and the abstaining from doing that which you have bewailed. The Hebrew hinachim has the same meaning, viz. to repent and grieve over the past. Whence God, when he saw the men whom he had created rushing into wickedness, repented him that he had made man upon the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And he said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. 
Wherefore, the Hebrew gospel attributed to St. Matthew by Munster has less fully, instead of hinachim and nechumen, i.e. to repent and repentance, teshchuba, i.e. conversion, or shuba, that is, be converted to the Lord. For repentance is not merely turning to God, but turning away from sin. Also, grief, compunction, and satisfaction, as the Apostle teaches. 2 Corinthians 7 and Joel, Turn unto me with all your heart, and with weeping and fasting and mourning. Whence it is plain that repentance must include three duties, sorrow, a new life, and chastisement of sins, in order to please God. For the kingdom of heaven, etc., in which God reigns in the faithful, by grace in this life, and in the life to come by glory, and makes them kings and partakers of his eternal kingdom. John first preached the kingdom of heaven, says the gloss, which the Jews had never heard of, says St. John Chrysostom, and St. Jerome says, John the Baptist first preaches the kingdom of heaven, that the precursor of the Lord might be honored with this privilege. Observe the Jews expected that their kingdom under King Messiah would be rich and splendid in their land, such as it was under Solomon. St. John, therefore, and after him Christ and the apostles, begin their preaching from the kingdom of Messiah, but a kingdom heavenly, not earthly, as though to say, now is the time of heaven being opened, which Christ shall shortly open unto you by his death. Repent ye therefore for your sins past, correct your lives, be changed for the better, that ye may be meet to be taken by him into his kingdom. Behold, now is the accepted time foretold by Isaiah. Now is the day of salvation, the day when heaven, which has been shut for four thousand years, is opened, and they who will may enter into it, if indeed they will walk in the path which Christ has pointed out, the path of faith, hope, and charity, and a heavenly life, and enter into the spiritual kingdom of the church militant, which shall have its joyful consummation in the church triumphant. Thus Theophylact and Jansen. Francis Lucas says, The kingdom of heaven is the dominion of Christ, both over the holy angels and the company of those men who rightly ordered life on earth, is obedient to God ruling from heaven. For this is he, etc. I have commented at length upon this in Isaiah 40, and will not repeat here. St. John was the voice of God, one announcing that Christ was about to come, two pointing out that he was now born, and inviting men to repent and prepare for the grace of Christ. By the expression crying, the strength of his preaching is denoted, says Rabban. Aptly says Bede, God indeed cried by means of others, but he himself is the only voice, because he shows the present word. Prepare therefore the way of the Lord is the same as repent ye, as though arouse ye, O Jews, and ye, O inhabitants of the world, as many as ye be, Christ is about to come, and to be installed as Messiah your King. Make smooth your ways, as is wont to be done for monarchs. Take away all things which can afford or dishonor him, that Christ may be freely and with longing received by all, that indeed each may prepare their hearts and minds by thorough repentance for the faith and the grace of Christ in every kind of holiness. 
the same John, etc., not the flowing robe commonly called Camelots, as Christeros, and those luxurious innovators who magnificently adorn themselves in the pulpits, like the suitors of Penelope. For Christ commands John for the roughness of his clothing. John fled from the halls of Herod and retired into the desert, and preferred a hovel to a palace. His garment was cheap, rugged, hairy, and made of sackcloth. Yea, says St. Chrysostom and others, the clothing of his body spoke of the virtue of his soul. Eusebius of Emissa says that John's raiment was made of camel's hair sackcloth, since Syria abounds in camels. By this means he tamed his flesh in his youth. Like as St. Paul says, I chastise my body and bring it under servitude, lest after I had preached to others I myself should be a castaway. 1 Corinthians 9 For sackcloth by its hairs and pointed bristles pricks the flesh all over as with little needles, mortifies it greatly, and restrains its lusts, as they know who have made trial of it. Hence St. Agedius, one of the first companions of St. Francis, being asked why St. John, who had not sinned, led so austere a life, and did penance, replied, As flesh is seasoned with salt, that it may not corrupt, so was the body of the Baptist seasoned with penance. Penance, as St. Cyprian says, is that penetrating salt which dries up the rankling putrefications of the flesh. Hence, as Saints Hilarion, Anthony, Paul, Pacomius, and the rest of the anchorites, according to the testimony of St. Jerome and others, were clothed in hair shirts or sackcloth, such as the Capuchins wear now, and such as was worn by Elijah, Elisha, and the other prophets, as I have shown in my preface to the Minor Prophets. In truth, God made for Adam not fine linen or woolen tunics, but coats of skin and rough ones, that by them, as by a hair shirt, he might tame his flesh and do penance for his sins, as I have shown in Genesis. That is a wise saying of Augustus Caesar in Suetonius, Soft and splendid clothing is the banner of pride and a seed plot of luxury. St. Ephraim concludes his life of St. Abraham, the hermit, thus, In all the fifty years of his abstinence, he never changed the hair shirt which was his clothing. St. Clair wore for twenty-eight years, even in sickness, a hair shirt made of hog's bristles. When St. Jehoshaphat exchanged a kingdom for the desert, he wore a hair shirt next to his skin, under his clothes. Theodoret says that the emperor wishing to see St. Abraham the hermit called him to him, and when he came received him with a salutation, and regarded his rough sackcloth as of more excellence than his own purple. When St. William, Duke of Aquinitine, was converted by St. Bernard, he tamed his flesh with an iron coat of mail, and armed it against temptation. St. Dominic did the same, and was for that reason surnamed Loricatus, coated with mail. St. Martin as Sulpitius testifies, was of opinion that it becomes a Christian to die on ashes, wherefore he himself, making his bed on ashes and clothed in sackcloth, so died. Saints Anselm, Charles Borromeo, and many others did the same and the leather girdle, etc. The prophets, indeed, all the Jews and Syrians, wore long robes, 
to prevent these flowing down to the ground and impeding their walking, they made use of girdles. Thus they were more ready for a journey and more strong for work. But John had a girdle of skin about his loins, that it might press his sackcloth more closely to his body, and so the more mortify his flesh and subdue it to the spirit. For in the loins is the origin of lust. St. John was in this a follower of Elias, whose eulogium is that he was a hairy man, and girt about the loins with a girdle of skin. It is a common saying, a girded garment, a girded mind, an ungirded garment, an ungirded mind. As it is said in Ecclesiastes 19, a man's clothing and excessive laughter and gait show what he is. And Cassian thus begins, so must a monk needs walk as a soldier of Christ, always ready for battle, and with his loins always girded his meat, etc. For locusts, the Greek has akrethus, which Bezra erroneously understands to mean wild pears, for they are not called akrethus, but akrethus. Akras is a wild pear tree, a species of thorn. A second opinion of certain heretics, mentioned by St. Epiphanius, is also wrong. By akrethes is understood Agrethis, or sweetmeats made of oil and honey. Thirdly, certain innovators take acrethis to mean sea crabs, but these are not called acrethis, but acrathes, or crathes in Athenius. But where, I ask, could John procure crabs in the desert? Besides, crabs are crawling on the ground, which are forbidden to the Jews. Fourthly, by acrethes translate herbs, or tops of trees and leaves, the Ethiopian has his food was errant anavota, the tops of herbs with wild honey or dipped in honey. But I say acrethes are locusts, so the Vulgate, Syriac, and Arabic. The Egyptian translates grasshoppers, but it means locusts, which chirp like grasshoppers, and both are so-called because they feed upon ta'akra, i.e. the tops of ears of corn and plants. So theocretes and the lexicons passum, whence Origen, Hilary, Ambrose, Chrysostom, Augustine understand by the word a kind of leaping insect, which is frequently eaten by the Ethiopians, Libyans, Parthians, and some Orientals. Hence St. Jerome says, because clouds of locusts are found throughout the vast solitudes of the burning deserts, they are used as food, and this was what John the Baptist ate. So to the locust, because it leaps, was counted a clean animal, and was allowed by God to be eaten by the Israelites. Leviticus 11. Moreover, the ancients were wont to eat locusts, either sodden or roasted, and when dried in the sun or salted and smoked, they would be kept for a year. Nothing is here said of John's drink, for it is certain that he drank water only. Indeed, there is nothing else to be had in the desert. So the angel said of him, he shall neither drink wine nor strong drink. Wild honey. What sort of honey was this? First, Rabanus is of the opinion that it was the white and tender leaves of trees, which when rubbed with the hands give out a kind of honeyed flavor. Two. Others think that this honey was a moisture collected from the leaves of trees. Three. Sudas thinks that it was the gum collected from trees and shrubs, which is called manna. Four. And rightly, St. Chrysostom, Theophylact, Isidore of Pelusum, 
believe that it was wild honey made by wild bees, which they store in hollow trees, and which has a somewhat bitter and disagreeable flavor. The Ethiopic version here has sedents, which means a particular kind of honey, sweeter and more wholesome than the common honey. It is made by a kind of bee, less than the common bee, about the size of a fly. End of chapter 3, verses 1 through 4.